0: Hey, friends, welcome to another episode of the Laity Podcast. Really excited to share this conversation with you that we recently had with Thomas J. Ord, as we continue our series on Open and Relational Theology. One of our guests who we met last week, though the episode hasn't aired yet, is Trip Fuller, who's the, the infamous, notorious host of the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. Trip is also a process theology guy, and we had him on board to talk about that. That episode's coming in a couple weeks, but wanted to let you know, if you're based in Atlanta... There's an event. Trip will be doing a live podcast interviewing David Gushy uh, and others, I believe, at Wild Heaven Brewery, which is in Avondale Estates. So if you're in Atlanta, you probably know Decatur area. um, Wild Heaven is awesome, and the folks who run that shop are great. They're hosting this event. It's free. It's this Monday. February, I want to say the 25th. So Friday, excuse me, Monday, the 25th at 7 p.m. It's 7 to 9 at Avondale Estates. Trip Fuller doing a live podcast. I'll be there, not involved in the podcast, uh, but we'd love to, to have you on board as well. That being said, enjoy this conversation with Thomas J. Ward. Thanks for joining us, and uh, I'm sure you'll love it as much as we did. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast, and uh, we're, we're really excited to have you on board with us um, for another conversation uh, around process theology, open and relational understandings of God. And we have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Thomas J. Ord, joining us uh, from Idaho. Tom, how are you? Welcome.
1: Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for inviting me to this conversation.
0: Absolutely. Glad to have you Absolutely. on. Absolutely, very glad to have you on, and appreciate you you carving out the time. To- the time, um, Tom uh, is a professor uh, of theology at Northwest Nazarene University um, there in Idaho. He's also written a number of books, um, a couple of which we're going to dive into hopefully with some depth here, which I'll introduce in a moment. Uh, but he's also an ordained minister. Uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, and uh, we're, we're just excited to to have you on board, Tom. One for your work, uh, particularly around what we're going to dive into today, but but even more broadly, just to, under, to get to know folks from from different different streams and backgrounds than Stephen and I, and uh, it's an honor. But to to quickly just give a, a couple of plugs for the books that we're going to be focused on today. Um, one is that your your most recent book. Um, which is called "God Can't," um, and that's been out now. That that's that's like over the last couple of months, correct? Brand
1: new. No, actually, yeah, it came out just this January, so it's not even a month old. Oh, great!
2: How many? How many lists is, is, is it? Is it at the top of Tom? <laughs> what do you have to yeah, now? Nine.
1: It is number one on nine Amazon book category lists, and so that's, I should say it was. It, there's not number one all the time on those nine, so it goes up and down and fluctuates. But yeah, that's pretty neat. That's great.
0: And the I have to read the tagline on this book. So God can how to believe in God and love after abuse tragedy. And other evils, and uh, another one of your just really cornerstone, I think, books that I've really enjoyed. I know Stephen has as well. Is called the, the Uncontrolling Love of God, an open and relational account of providence. Uh, and for those of you who feel like you're already lost, um, stick with us because I think this will be a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, thanks, thanks again for for coming on board, Stephen. I'm gonna pass the ball to you and maybe we can get our conversation rolling.
2: Great. Well, uh, Tom, like Andrew said, we're we're in a little sort of series on open and relational frameworks of God, and uh, that's a pretty big umbrella. So I'm wondering for you, how do you how do you impact just even just those terms? What does it mean to think of God in an open and relational way, and how is that different from what from our standpoints here in in, in the United States might be the traditional framework?
1: Yeah, uh, first let me start with the word relational. Um, word relational is basically saying that God is related to us, to the world, in such a way that not only what God does affects us and all creation, but what we and all creation do actually affects God. So it's probably a fairly natural way to think uh, about God, at least for people who, you know, read the Bible a lot and and think that their prayers might make a difference to God, that God's happy or upset by what happens in the world. It's a very, I think, common view of a God who is engaged in ongoing giving and receiving kind of relationships. And um, it is actually not a view that has been held by some of the most important theologians in Christian history. Hmm. For instance, uh, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, none of them believe that God was really affected by what we do. And so the relational part of open relational theology says that we have given, receive relationships with God. The open side of this uh, is a way of talking about the future being open, not only for us, but also for God. And that means that things haven't been settled. The future isn't complete. It isn't fixed. They're already determined. And so God knows everything that happened in the past and everything that's happening in the present and everything that could possibly happen in the future. But because the future is open, both to us and to God, even God can't know with absolute certainty what we and other creatures will do. So, God is relational, giving and receiving, and God is open because the future is open
2: that's uh, that, that, that's helpful so how how would you explain um or can, can you give us just the lay of the land of of what the open relational camp is like i mean one of my favorite things about discovering this little uh this little neighborhood, so to speak theologically uh is there's all kinds of people in it
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there are people who self-identify as process thinkers, who self-identify as openness thinkers or Wesleyans, some Arminians, some feminists, some post-colonialists, some liberation. I mean, there's, there's lots of folks who self-identify with particular labels who fit under this broad umbrella because they have a God who is, you know, in giving, receiving relationships and for whom things haven't been settled in the future.
0: And what's the, for those who don't necessarily, like you explained that, like, hey, God's affected by by us. I mean, it seems rather straightforward on one hand. Like, of course, he's moved, yeah. you know, by what we do. The flip side is I think most people probably don't even realize that they might be within a, a Christian framework or a church setting where that's not kind of the theological stance. what What is the alternative, even with the Augustines and the Aquinas and the John Calvins and others even more contemporary um, what is the other side kind of the contrast of a non open and relational, you know, God look like?
1: Yeah. The, the God who is not relational in this kind of sense is what uh, the classical theologians called impassable. That means not affected. God has not only no emotions, but God is not causally influenced by anything we do. And the thinking was kind of this, um, They started with the idea that God is perfect, which open relational theologians will agree with. And then they'll say, um, well, because God is perfect, any change in a perfect being could only be changed from perfection to imperfection. And since we Mm -hmm. don't want an imperfect God, then we must have an unchanging God. Well, if God's not changing, then God must not be affected by what we do. And therefore, all of the language about God being, uh, you know, happy, upset, uh, or some kind of reacting or responding to what's going on in the world, that must be anthropomorphic projection, which is a fancy way of saying, we're just making God in our image. And um, so a lot of folks in, like Aquinas and Augustine and their followers even today will say, well, this language in the Bible about God being affected by what we do is not really true, literally. It's just a way of speaking. Whereas open mm. relational thinkers saying, no, God really is affected by what happens, and our lives really do have an effect on God. Let me, If you don't mind, let me give you two yeah. examples of how I think this matters. Uh, first example, um, when I'm in church... And I'm singing a song of praise. Uh, I used to think, before I thought God was relational, that my singing these songs of praise were kind of, just kind of reminders to me and to other people in the congregation of God's attributes. And it was just sort of a little catechism put to music. But with a relational perspective, I now think my praise actually has an effect on god god can literally be blessed by my praise wow and that for me is really motivating it makes me feel like what i do makes a real difference or take uh, the issue of what we oftentimes call petitionary prayer the vast majority of christians i know who pray and ask god to do something do so because they think that their prayers just might make a difference. Now, of course, you know, maybe they they won't, maybe God has other plans or something else goes on. But we generally pray uh, using petitionary prayer, thinking that what we ask or say might have an effect on what God does. And that only makes sense if God is truly relational. If God Hmm. is unaffected by anything, then petitionary prayer really doesn't matter.
0: Wow. No, that's helpful. Can you tell us, not to go too off here, by way of intro, but when did this whole conversation become not only on, I guess, on your radar, but but particularly relevant and and something that you are passionate about exploring? I know you, you talk about some of the personal side of that in, in in the uncontrolling love of God, but can you give us insight into kind of how this became some, you know, you really your life's work to an extent?
1: Yeah, you know, I was raised in the Church of Nazarene, in which I'm still an elder, an ordained elder, and and I still preach it from time to time. Um, And that's a Wesleyan tradition, so the followers of John Wesley. And John Wesley had a view of God in which he tried to place the themes of love at the center of how he thought about God. He thought that in his reading of the Bible that uh, love was at the very core of who God was and how we ought to live in the world. And that prompted him to begin to start using what today we call relational theology language. He wasn't an open theist. He still thought God, you know, quote, knew the future and that sort of a thing. But he was a relational thinker. And for me, um, this became important because... After being raised a Christian and being uh, someone who was a really hardcore evangelist, I came to the place in my life where it didn't make sense anymore to me that there was a God. I began to read um, writings by important and smart atheists, agnostics, and those of other religious traditions. And... um, the reasons I had for believing that there was a God at all just no longer made sense to me, and so Is this, were, were you in the midst of your healing ministry days? <laughs> that was after that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this was at the end of my college career. In fact, Got I'll it. never forget uh, coming to pick up my wife, my fiancee, who's now my wife, and her getting in the car and me telling her I just can't believe in God anymore. Um, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I just had to you know, say, I, I don't believe. Now, mm-hmm. I, I came back to belief. I wasn't an atheist for a really long time, but I came back to belief because it began to make, it seemed more plausible than not that there was a God if I was going to make sense of these deep intuitions I had about love, that, that I ought to love, that other people ought to love, that there was meaning in life and, and some other things. But um, the because love was so central in my way of thinking about God, it then is the center of the way I think about theology, and in my way of thinking, is at the center of open and relational theology.
2: That that to me has been one of the most attractive things about the framework is that in open and relational thinking, love the love of God is it's placed at the center. There's no longer um, it's it's not. Uh, balanced out so to speak with justice or like that it's, it's okay to say no actually God is love exactly and to not feel any need to qualify that uh, with you know some of the usual uh, you know nuances with how but, he, but he's also just and that means he can't have anything to do with whole, with, with sin or whatnot yeah and, yeah well you, um, you know
1: if you have a view that God is unaffected then it's really hard to take love seriously at the center of your theology. But if you got a relational God who's giving and receiving an ongoing relationship, then the themes of love fit nicely in that context.
2: Yeah. Um, so I, I want to shift here to your book, but but real quick before we do, um, I think it'd be helpful for our folks just to understand a little bit more about um, what's, what, come, what, what is likely already in their heads uh, theologically without them even knowing it, right? So, And how they think about God. Uh, maybe sovereignty, impassibility, omnipotence, uh, and then in particular, since your book, God God Can, is about the problem of evil. Uh, I'd love for you to sort of talk about how that um, uh, software that kind of comes out of the box for us here, you know, where we live, how that affects uh, how we think about evil and and why that's problematic.
1: Sure, sure. There are... Uh, there is a small percentage of people still in the world who think that God controls absolutely everything. They think everything is determined, there's no such thing as free will, and God does the whole, you know, kit and caboodle. Most Christians I know, however, think that we have free will, and they think that God has voluntarily decided not to control us, to to give us this agency, to give us this ability to choose. And God may occasionally step in, intervene to control a situation, to bring about a miracle, or make sure something happens. But generally speaking, God's kind of got a hands-off approach to life and allows us to use our freedom. Now, sometimes we use that freedom wrongly, And then God Mm -hmm. has to kind of make a decision on whether or not to, you know, save the people we might hurt or just let the hammer fall on them. But God has the kind of power to rescue single-handedly if God wants to. God could control us and maybe sometimes does. That's the way most people think. And in fact, that's the view of God most people bring to the Bible, and so when they read a story of the Bible that says God did X or y or Z, they in their mind jump, most of them at least, to thinking that God did it single-handedly, in a controlling kind of way, that God guaranteed this outcome because mm. God made sure, you know, through what philosophers would call acting as a sufficient cause. Now the Bible doesn't ever, and let me repeat ever, explicitly say, God alone acted to bring about some situation. Sometimes only God is Hmm. mentioned in a story, but it never explicitly says that God was the only cause and there was no other creaturely contribution. But a ton of people come to the Bible. And when I say a ton of people, I just don't mean people in the pews. I mean a bunch of theologians some professionals in biblical studies. They have this kind of view of God in the back of their brain, that's so much a part of our society, and they come to the biblical text with that God in mind. So, what makes my view radically different is that I say God simply can't control others. It's not that God has voluntarily chosen not to control people some of the time or most of the time, but maybe does on occasion but God simply doesn't have the kind of power to single-handedly bring about some result, some outcome, some state of affairs by God acting all alone. And I say this not because I think God is a wimp or that some you know demonic power is controlling God or that we're stronger than God or creation stronger or whatever. I say this because I think that God's love is inherently uncontrolling. And love comes first in God's nature. So that means God simply can't control other humans, other creatures, any parts of creation.
2: Now, can you, can you talk for a minute about, about essential kenosis? I know that sounds like a really technical term, but um, that, that's actually coming from your Uncontrolling Love of God book. I I, I think it's a, it's a really helpful framework for, for setting up a stage for discussing God can't.
1: Sure. Uh, Yeah. So essential kenosis is just kind of a little phrase I coined to try to talk about a position that kind of stands between two other positions. On the one side, we'll call it the left. Uh, On the left side, there's a view that God can't do things because some Principalities and powers are constraining God. Some external forces, maybe it's the God-world relationship, or maybe it's metaphysical laws or the laws of nature, or maybe it's demons or the devil. Something exterior to God is constraining God's power, and God can't do some things because of these external constraints. I'm against that view. On the other side, we'll call it the right side, is the common view you hear people use when they talk about kenosis, and that's the view that God voluntarily decides not to control others. God could and maybe occasionally does, but uh, most of the time, God makes a choice not to control others, to give freedom or agency or self-organization or whatever, regularities in nature, but God could control And the real problem with that view is that if you think God really can control if God wants to, then you have to then say that every single horrific thing that has ever happened, from your sister's rape, to genocide, to mass murders, Mm. to whatever, God could have stopped them if God wanted to. And for me, I just can't go that far. I think a loving God, if God were able would stop the genuine evils of the world. So my position is a middle position between that sort of external limitations on God and this voluntary self limitation. My view says that God is limited by God's own nature. And that nature is self giving others empowering and therefore uncontrolling love. And since God can't contradict God's Mm. own nature God necessarily can't control anyone or anything.
2: How do you respond, how do you respond though, when people, when people Ugh, hear this and awesome. they say, well, but, but, but Tom, you're, you're, you're forgetting that our perspective is limited, and, and see, God sees the whole picture, and so what seems to us to be evil or a bad situation uh, made us actually be reflective of our inability to see the whole. That's kind of the, the appeal to yeah. mystery.
1: Right, That's the, the number one thing that most scholars do. Uh, scholars are usually smart enough to get past the usual cliches you might hear in a you know, normal church setting. And they, at the end of the day, they don't want to give up a certain view of God's power and they want to believe that God is loving, so they say, it's a mystery. In some unfathomable way, what is happening is a part of God's plan, or at least, if God would have stopped it, that would have been worse than God allowing it. And so they play the big mystery card. Well, I, I don't want to come across as thinking I have all the answers that, that you know, I know everything there is to know. But um, I don't buy the mystery card because the same people who play that mystery card in that setting come right back around and they're convinced that God has a certain kind of power or that God has a certain kind of love. And so they play the mystery card when it's convenient, when the, the going gets tough. And so I think what we ought to do, instead of playing the mystery card, a big question mark right in the middle of our theological proposals, is that we ought to present a, a way of thinking, what I call a model of God, It doesn't have big question marks right in the middle, and you place it on the field and say, hey, this is a way of looking at God that seems to make a lot of sense to me, that I'm not, you know, playing the mystery card. Um, Now, you come up with a model you think is better, um, and let's compare models. And I personally will go with whatever model comes out the best, but it's kind of a comparison of ways of looking at God and the model that i'm placing on the on the uh, field says god's power is limited by god's loving nature god is the most powerful being in the universe but not even the most powerful being in the universe can control others because that being has an uncontrolling has uncontrolling love as the primary attribute in god's nature Hmm. gosh
2: do, do you think that sometimes Part of the reaction to this uh, is because I think this is this is a quote from Whitehead that we've basically given we've ascribed unto unto God that which has only ever belonged unto Caesar. So, for for God to be powerful, yeah. for God to be God, even sometimes, basically means like, oh, God can unilaterally exert His will. Have, have we have we yeah. just missed have yeah. we just missed the definition of what power is?
1: Well, I think it's it's fairly natural. I mean, people, and I'm part of this group, I want to ascribe the most power possible to God um, and still have it make sense. Um, so, you know, we look around our world and we ask who is really powerful. And oftentimes it's been the monarchs, the kings and queens, the people in political power who we've looked to as our examples of power. Um and of course, the problem with those examples is that uh, every single one of them it has is morally flawed. And so we don't think about power in reference to love. We don't think about love shaping what power is like. And and if we really put a lot of time and, and, and um, effort into it, we can actually see in our own experience that some people who don't have... <laughs> Big muscles are a lot more powerful than people who do have mm. big muscles. You know, take take Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mother Teresa. Who's the most powerful between the two? Well, if it was lifting weights, I'll take Arnold Schwarzenegger. But if it's having influence in the world, I'll go with Mother Teresa. Uh, why is Mother Teresa powerful? Because the way she's acted has persuaded, convinced has gotten people on board to give selflessly, self-sacrificially to help others. And that kind of influence, that persuasive influence, is far more powerful than a single-handed kind of uh, actor like Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: Hmm. Oh man, it's so compelling. And as you're talking, I, f- I know we have some specifics we want to get into even in in Scripture, but... I'm going, why, where does the framework come from that says otherwise? Like, where does the omnipotent framework, and we've just hinted at some of this, but um, I'm racking my brain for it. This makes so much sense and so compelling and frankly is so exemplified in Jesus. Um, And maybe it's my view of the Old Testament. Maybe it's my understanding of, um, excuse me, prayer and what God does and doesn't listen to and an answer. But anyway, I, I, I think there's some specifics we can get into, Because I think that the, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, well, what about, you know, in scripture where we see what it look what appears at face value to be, you know, God intervening here and there. Um, and I think your the, the point particularly that you lay out in, in uncontrolling love with God is that, well, you know, it, it does he only, you know, to, to get involved in some scenarios and not others, you know, is problematic and, um, anyway we can we can continue but you know this book focuses obviously on on uh, uh on the problem of evil specifically and, and I was w- hoping you could walk us through you know you talk about these these five steps um you take as you're speaking you know with people that have gone through, you know use a language of tragedy abuse and and other evils that have that have challenged their faith. so for those who have, you know, who are actually in this now or have recently experienced you know death in the family or um, a, a terminal diagnosis um, or you know seeing just real evils in the world or right you know in their in their in their space. How do you actually begin to walk folks through this and and how does the Bible actually inform these yeah. these steps?
1: Um, let me let me answer that by talking a little bit about how, I decided I came to write this new book, God Can't. Um, the sure, Uncontrolling yeah. Love of God book was published in late 2015 by uh, InterVarsity Press Academic. And although I tried to write it in a way that non-academics could understand it, it was, you know, aimed at a more academic audience. Um, many people read that book and started sending me notes, you know, thanking me and, because they'd found it helpful. And I realized I really needed to write a book that people could understand who didn't have theology degrees. Uh, So I needed to write what my wife likes to call a Barnes and Noble book, by which she (laughs) means, you know, the kind of book you can just go into a bookstore and pick up and understand. And also, I realized that these notes that people sent me could be really helpful in illustrating the ideas uh, that I wanted to talk about in this new book, God Can't. So for instance, um, I got a Facebook message from a woman who had read The Uncontrolling Love of God and understood my argument that God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. And she said, uh, you know, I am a victim, uh, a survivor of sexual abuse. My family members, boyfriends, and a stranger have sexually abused me. And I had always thought that God had allowed it, that God was just kind of standing there while I went through this horrific pain. Um, God could have prevented it, but God just sort of stood by and did nothing. And now here's a view of a God who was with me in the midst of all that difficulty, but didn't have the power to stop it single-handedly. God was obviously calling upon her abusers Mm. to stop what they were doing, but God couldn't stop it single-handedly. And she said, uh, you know, she would rather believe in a God who can't prevent evil than a God who could and chooses to allow it. And I thought, well, that's the kind of stories Mm. that I want to put in this new book. So that's why there are dozens and dozens of those kinds of stories. Some of them, you know, some of them people sent me. Some of them uh, folks published in other books after having read my book and a few other stories here and there. But um, when I came to write this book, I wanted to explain the central idea of the uncontrolling love of God and then add some others that I think together can uh, t- can what I actually say solve the problem of evil?
2: That's a pretty that's a got pretty it. bold statement. It is. We
0: we need yeah. you to solve. Someone's got to solve yeah, it. So, so all
2: right, <laughs> so let's. Uh, uh, you know, Tom, I'm I'm am a registered nurse, and um, I, I spent three my last sort of years at the bedside. Uh, well, not remember really the bedside. I guess I, I was an outpatient oncology research nurse, and so I mm. um I would. Mix the chemo and go do drug education. And, and I got, I actually, eventually, when I got into the research nursing, I got to really develop relationships with my patients. And it always, I mean, without fail, it seemed like, and this is going to sound crass, I understand, but it, it seemed like all the wrong people made it, right? Like, like the guy, <laughs> like the guy who's literally smoking a pack of cigarettes outside the office before his chemo. He's the one who has the amazing response and does awesome, and and and, <laughs> and, and goes like out of the bars to celebrate afterwards. Then, when the thirty-two-year-old, you know, brand new dad, uh, he's the one who doesn't. And and so I'm, I'm wondering. Yeah. I'm thinking of one patient in particular. Uh, bought a house, like, and just purchased the house literally the day of closing. Got the call from the path report. Things weren't good. Uh, had to get and 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 all the while his wife was like pregnant. I, I mean, so you, I mean you can imagine these. How, how can it be possible that a loving God would 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 let these things happen? It sounds like your book. What you're saying is he is he doesn't he doesn't let them happen. And so you've got these five steps. I'm wanting to see if you can kind of use those case studies and explain how your five steps make a better, make better sense of who God is and what he's doing for these actual flesh and blood people in really hard situations.
1: Yeah. Let me, uh, let me just quickly go over the five main points and then I'll come back and we'll use your good illustration there and I'll talk some about it. So the first chapter makes this bold claim that God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. And I go through and look at, you know, situations. I look at the book or the movie and book The Shack and and other kinds of things and kind of explain this idea of essential kenosis that I've been mentioning. The second chapter says that even though God can't prevent evil single-handedly, God really suffers with us. God feels our pain. God is one who empathizes with us perfectly. The third chapter I take On the questions of healing and I try to provide a framework to make sense of why some people seem to be healed and most people are not healed. The fourth chapter I take on the question or the issues of you know why it is that sometimes we grow from the difficulties of life but um, other times we don't and I make the claim that God works to squeeze good from the evil God didn't want in the first place. And then the final chapter, I talk about working with God to uh, make our lives and the world better, that God actually needs our cooperation for love to win. So, circling back to this whole issue of you know why do some people get healed and in, in you know in, in these hospitals in those situations and others don't even when sometimes the people who are not healed seem to live a more wholesome and a healthy life than those who are healed. Um, I talk in this book that um, when we think about the factors and actors present in the healing process. It's not just the kinds of decisions we might make in our mind or soul or our heart, whatever we think our our decision-making center of who we are is, but there are also other agents and actors in our bodies, muscles, cells, organs, tendons, veins, etc. And they have power and agency that neither we can control entirely nor God can control entirely. And so I argue that God is always at all times, working to heal at every place in our bodies and throughout the entire universe, but sometimes the conditions are not conducive for that healing to occur, and sometimes we or others don't cooperate with God's healing activity.
0: Hmm. Now, in that, but in that model, like, do you ever hear the the pushback? Like, well, then why, you know, what, why pray for? For healing and that like if God can't do it but he's trying to do it and some like what role does not to get ahead of ourselves what role does does prayer then play in in that scenario
1: yeah that's a great great question and before I answer it let's let's think about what the usual way of thinking about prayer implies if I'm right that the usual way says God could control but God either allow you know allows things to happen because of free will or whatever, then that means that God can fix things even if we pray for it. That means that God can heal even if we don't ask God to heal. Now what kind of a picture does that present of God? A God who's right. sitting back, twiddling his thumb, saying, you know what? You know, Stephen prays 87 times, I'm gonna heal him, but I'm sorry he stopped at 49. Right. Or, you know, God saying, you just aren't trying hard enough. you got to have a whole lot more faith. Believe harder. I mean, that kind of image really sucks. So before I talk... A (laughs) lot of people have that. A lot of people (laughs) have that, man. It causes a lot of pain. Oh, that's the dominant image. I mean, I remember growing up... uh, This is maybe a side note, but it illustrates this. Um, I remember growing up being a part of a church in which we had periodic uh, revival services and these traveling evangelists would come to our church. And, and the pastor, to get us sort of prepared for it, would uh, have us commit to praying a certain amount of time, you know, hours of prayer. And we would put at the front of a church a big... Uh, like a thermometer on butcher paper, you know, from the floor to the ceiling. Oh, like a and, fundraiser? <laughs> yeah, kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> and on the side, it would say hours of prayer, you know. And the more we prayed, and at the very top, it have the word <laughs> revival. And it gave you the impression that God would send revival if we got all the hours of prayer right up to the top. Now, <laughs> that's the way I think a lot of people think about prayer. Yes, you know, they yeah, think, that yeah. you know, you just got to pray a lot or you got to be on God's good side. Or if you're not healed is because of your sin or it's yeah, because of holiness. some mysterious plan, you know. So before I talk about my view of prayer, let, let's first... Uh, it sounds like you're agreeing with me. The usual view sucks.
2: Absolutely, I second <laughs> that. <Yeah. laughs> okay.
1: And it's
0: awkward <laughs> it when someone asks you to pray in the group, and you're yes. like, "Honestly, yes, it right. is."
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in my view, I think God is working all the time at all places to work to the utmost. I also think that what I do has an effect not only on God but on me and on the world. I really believe this relational thing is not just between me and God, it's between me and you and all creation. And I also believe that uh, things I do can affect people and things from a great distance from where I'm at. I'm really into, into this interrelated view of reality. So that means that my prayers can actually open up new possibilities because they have an influence on God and the world. It doesn't force God to do things. It doesn't mean God is going to do exactly what I'm going to do. It doesn't force my cells or the cells of the person I'm praying for to do things. But it's real agency. It's real action in the world. And if the world is truly interrelated, what I do could actually open up new possibilities for God to work for the creatures and creations, the muscles, the cells, whatever. Um, I'm not going to say I know exactly how that all works, but the theory, the metaphysical or ontological theory is in place for saying that prayer really can make a difference without forcing God to do things, without controlling anyone or anything. That's interesting. Hmm. So when I pray for someone, for instance, because I'm asked to do that at an awful lot too, i usually begin my prayer by acknowledging god's presence i say god i believe you're here and working already working to heal to the utmost and i know that in my praying that i'm planting seeds in the minds of anyone who listens and including my own mind and that might open up some new possibilities because you know there's all kinds of studies about the mind-body relationship and how those things have interacted And God can then use those possibilities maybe in ways. And then I'll say something like, God, I know you're working already. Give us insights and how we might cooperate with you in this time, how we might help Jane here or that we might have insights that could uh, act, help us act differently. Or, you know, I'll pray that you give God new uh, uh, ideas if there's an operation or whatever. I'm I'm saying to God, I'm. A vessel. I'm open to your leadings, your inclinations, intuitions you might have for me to cooperate in the healing I believe you are already trying to do in this situation.
2: Hmm. You know, I, I recently was in a, uh, I was in a, a prayer group uh, praying for somebody and, 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 and... I'm. I i do not know. I mean, prayer has become, frankly, pretty awkward for me lately. <laughs> it's just kind of. Yeah. A, yeah. Uh, try, and you're switching to. I mean, as I, I, what I think is happening is I'm kind of switching to some sort of an open relational framework, and. Uh, it is. It's awkward to be in a situation where where the 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 dominant kind of. Statements are, you know, God, you control all things. You can make all these things happen, um, and and I don't want to make light of them because these, these are these are honorable, respectable folks. That I, I mean, this, this is my community. Yeah, um, yeah, but I'm I'm also like apparently the only one who has a problem with that. Um, sometimes <laughs> I, so like, I doubt that. Where, I doubt where, it. Where, where <laughs> if, where, where it feels like, man, how God, if you could, if you could, if you could fix this, then why? Don't you like what? How, how, I just exactly. can't, how could this be your will? So that's, I think what has attracted me so much to this thinking is that it, 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 it I think it does, it creates a space for like leg, legitimate lament. Um
1: mm, Yeah. Which yeah. is
2: powerful because so many times I feel, I hear people in suffering just saying, you know what? I know that God's got a plan. I know God's got a plan. And, and, and you can just tell, that everything is crumbling, you can just yeah, tell yeah. in their eyes that the world is crumbling, but yep. but they but, but they can't they can't release it and let it go and, and 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 sort of enter whatever embrace this open relational God wants to offer and whatever healing can be on offer, because they're so tied up in defending a particular worldview and I,
1: that's um well
0: and they don't know an alternative. Uh, I think yeah. for many people. That's
1: a big issue. That's yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. That's a huge problem. Yeah. And I, you know, the position that I'm proposing here, uh, it, it has a real, it has room for lament in the sense that we can really lament that things aren't going the way we or God want them to go. Yeah. Now other traditions might have lament and their lament is God, you could fix this. Why don't you do it? You know, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, the lament in, in our tradition says, you know, God, you, oh, we believe you're doing the utmost and we want to cooperate with you in the kind of healing we believe you want to have happen, but it ain't happening. The conditions aren't right. There's some, not the kind of cooperation that's necessary at some level of existence. And, uh, we lament. This sucks. It's not your fault. It's not our fault. It just sucks. Wow. Wow.
2: Well, can you can you talk in your book? You mentioned that that it's not that the the, the caveat of uh, you know if it's your will uh, just doesn't doesn't cut it. How, how did you for you. How, how how has that uh how did that shift happen for you and 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 I'm curious then how your framework makes better sense of god's will
1: yeah well uh, in the book i talk about growing up or actually it was in my uh, college and early um, 20s being a part of a movement that did uh, looked for healing and had uh, a healing kind of ministry and when, when we pray with for people you know, just like today in my life, a very small percentage of people actually got healed from anything significant. You know, people were healed from headaches left and right. right. But, you know, real major diseases, very few people actually got healed from those. And so, given the lack of success on these big issues, I began to hear a lot of people insert this little phrase, if it's your will, in their prayer. So they would pray for, you know aunt mary's cancer and say god please heal aunt mary if it's your will which was kind of a cover your ass kind of phrase (laughs) as to to you know like if it didn't work out then well it must not have been god's will to heal aunt mary after all Mm. and so you know that didn't sit with me very quickly that didn't sit with me well i i could see the real problems with that because I realize, look, if if it's God's will to heal Aunt Mary, then and if God could do it unilaterally, single-handedly, then you know we don't even have to pray here. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like we're wasting we're, we're wasting our time here. If God wants to do it, God can do it. If that's the kind of power God has, um, and this sort of adding, if it's your will, is just kind of not really playing, uh, being honest with what's going on. And so I set that aside, and actually for a while I was very skeptical of any kind of healing because of uh, the kinds of things that I had seen. Uh, and the open and relational perspective allowed me to come back to a place where I can affirm genuine healings, whether they're healings from the kind of more traditional methods we think of in terms of you know therapists, doctors, nurses, medicine, whatever, or the more unconventional kinds of healing that sometimes but rarely come through praying and laying on hands. Um, I can believe that creation cooperates with the various means that God might use to bring about healing. But when people aren't healed, I don't blame God. I blame the conditions, the you know, the lack of cooperation at some level or another. I rarely blame the victim herself for not being healed. I typically think most people pray with, you know, genuine honesty. I I typically want to blame the uh, cells, the muscles, the conditions of creation in some way.
2: Hmm. Um, you know, I, I want to make a shift here in just a, just a moment to, okay. to, to some of the like, common biblical objections. I mean, I know that people are, I think our, our, our listeners will, will, will want to just to hear how you hand, how you, uh, how you think about those. But before we do, I did have one other question. Um, it seems like, uh, the experiences of God moving, like in the, I, don't, I frankly, I don't know what their real term, their correct term is now the global South or, uh, hmm. wh- whatever it is. It, it seems like there is among, you know, um, nations that are, that are developing, <laughs> Uh, it it seems like there is a there is a particular kind of charismatic faith that is sort of exploding. Mm-hmm. Like the the center of Christianity is not going to be with white Westerners for mm-hmm. any longer, for much longer, if it even still is. Um, and the expressions of faith that are sort of uh that, that seem to be popping up, um, in these in, the, in these other places, seem to be really predicated on this idea that God like does do things um unilaterally or can or or a, a more what we'd understand uh, as sort of a traditional framework of God so how do we um I mean h- how do you how do we make sense of that i mean is is open and relational theology is it kind of a luxury or or or, or does it does it have something to offer for people who are in those other situations as well
1: Well, I actually think a lot of people in what you call the global South have an open and relational framework. It's just that they have retained certain views of God's power that make it, that are different from mine. Uh, You know, my view of God's power is that God can't control. But my view of God's power certainly has a place for dramatic healings, like we see, you know, these people witness. So it's not out of step with my view at all. Hmm. Um, We might say that the people in those situations are more open to those dramatic healings, or they're more, um, they expect it in ways that we don't. But I actually think there's another side of this that very few people talk about, even in the academy, and that is, um, in the West, God is doing some amazing, absolutely amazing healing, but we just call it modern medicine. We just say, well, we're just using the right techniques. We've got the right knowledge. We've got the right pills. We've got the right medicine. But if you think about this and you think about all those things as being part of creation and we are working with creation, and if you think God is at the very source of all healing, no matter where it comes, then what we've done is we've mistakenly set God aside uh, in the hospital and nursing and, and therapy kind of settings and not realize that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, even if it comes in the form of a bottle or, or a surgeon's mask. Um, and so I think we need to broaden our view of God's healing power in, quote, the developed world, if we're going to use that language, mm-hmm. and also, um, also be, I think, uh, open to dramatic healings in the other parts of the world, but also... Um, also want to look carefully at some of the claims that are made and there are quite a few people who've done follow-up kinds of uh, explorations of these kind of healing crusades and and found that a lot of the ailments people had returned so um there i don't think i think we need to be careful about the grand claims we make in those settings and we need to open ourselves up to more god talk about more traditional medicine practices in the west Hmm. That's
2: good. Okay. Yeah. That, I, that makes sense. So, so what? What about when people say, "Look, Tom, you're you're throwing out the Bible." I mean, come on. Like Jesus. Jesus <laughs> says, "Did do, do you not know?" Like what is it? What is the scene where uh, Malchus, or I think it's where Peter like goes and cuts off Malchus's ear, and he's like, "Hey, put the sword away. Those who draw the sword will die by the sword. Don't you know that I could call at my disposal?" whatever legion of angels and they, you know, and my father would send them. Um, or there's other verses you could use. Um, uh, I don't know, like, like the example of Ananias and Sapphira, where God like strikes them down. it's, there, there are times in the Bible where it really does seem like God has the power to unilaterally just take control and do stuff. Yeah. What do we do? What do we do with those?
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Ananias and Sapphira one, because I think that's a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier of us coming to the text and assuming the text says something that it doesn't Mm -hmm. say. The vast majority of people read that story and they conclude that God killed Ananias and Sapphira, but it doesn't actually say that in the story. They definitely die and they definitely have lied. But everyone just sort of jumps to that conclusion. And maybe even the disciples did, who knows? (laughs) But um, we oftentimes read these stories in a particular kind of way But if we go back to them with an open relational perspective, or maybe to be more specific, the uncontrolling love perspective that I've proposed, we can stick with those same passages and see that a lot of them can be taken uh, quite straightforwardly and make a lot of sense without jumping to those kinds of conclusions. I especially think this is true of, I guess I kind of said this earlier, so forgive me for repeating myself, but... um, I think this is especially true of stories in which the authors explicitly say God does X, Y, or Z. Um, I have a major character flaw that I want to admit to before I give my illustration, and that major character flaw is that I'm a New England Patriots fan. Hmm. Um, wow. That's it's,
0: it's major. Although oh, Brady looked absolutely – these guys were awesome last week. I
1: got to just throw that out they there. They are not alive. They were looking good. Wow. Yeah, I'll pray so, for healing, Tom. <laughs> I'll try to cooperate with God. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of years ago when they had their amazing comeback over the Falcons, you guys from Georgia may remember that. Um, Too soon. Too soon. Hey, I'm from <laughs> Philadelphia
0: originally. I'm just going to throw that out there for our listeners. So I'm happy after last year. But yes, we do remember remember the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history or whatever it was.
1: (laughs) I remember some newspapers having a headline that says, Tom Brady wins another Super Bowl. Now, that statement was true. But if you read that statement and said to yourself, oh, Tom Brady must have been the only player on the Patriots team that day you would, of course, be false. There was lots of other people who assisted Tom Brady in winning ah. that Super Bowl. Okay, okay. So we see the truth of the claim, God did X, but it, there's a possibility that God did X in concert or with cooperation with other aspects of creation or creatures. And so... Um, If we have this in mind, we can then look at Scripture that says God does things and not have to think that God did them single-handedly. And if God didn't do that single-handedly, then we don't have to believe that God has that kind of power to prevent the rotten things that we see in our lives and in the world. So just a way of thinking about uh, Scripture that I think might help people in terms of uh, uh, interpreting it through the open relational lens. There are other kinds of things that, uh, you know, come that people have to deal with. For instance, uh, I mentioned earlier that um, I've been, I'm an open theist too. And that means that I don't think God knows everything that's going to happen in the future. And so a lot mm. of people will read statements in the New Testament about God's foreknowledge. And uh, uh, mm. they'll say, well, that's obviously, you know, open theism can't account for that. And what open theists typically do with those kinds of passages, like the one in Acts comes to mind in Romans, is they will say that God foreknows certain categories of people without knowing with absolute certainty which people are going to be in the categories. So when it says, I think in Ephesians, that God foreknows yeah. the saints and whatever, I, I can't quote it perfectly. Yeah. Uh, what an open theist, and actually a lot of Wesleyans and Arminians say, is that what is foreknown there is the types of people that are going to be the sons and daughters of God, not whether or not Stephen and you know and Andrew and Tom are going to be in the category of those people. And so we can handle those foreknowledge passages pretty well. But I think we also have to be honest that there are a few scriptures here and there that don't really fit well with the open perspective. The one that I, I often cite is the one in which jesus says to peter before the cock crows twice he'll deny me three times or is it thrice deny me twice whatever it is yeah. i think you know the passage mm-hmm. um that one's really hard to reconcile with the open view that god doesn't know the future and so i think what people in my position ought to do is just say you know what uh, there are a few of Scripture that don't fit our view We think the majority of Scripture does. The preponderances of passages uh, fit the open view, but there are some that don't. And we should just be honest about that.
0: I love that. I just want to say that is just the idea that you could just have the open hand and yeah, this just doesn't fit. And I'm I just own that. Right. Yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's just what? Like, there's such a kind of this needs to be airtight, or or let's just throw the whole thing out. And so right. anyway, I yeah. I really appreciate that. What about this idea um, that I've heard my whole life? Well, you know, well, God is in control, yeah, um, or that you know that that phrase, God's in control. In this view, I guess I guess technically he's not, but I guess the objection might come. At, well, if he isn't, then in what sense is he really still God and who is ultimately in control? How do you uh, sit with that idea?
1: Yeah, you know, it so much depends on what you mean by the word control. Right. You know, right. Um, I typically don't like to say God is in control because I think most of the time when people mean that, they mean that God is either making sure all the details are exactly what God wants. Or they're saying no matter what happens, God is going to make sure through some sort of coercive power that God's going to get you know the right things at the end. God's going to win no matter what in the end. And um, if you have that kind of view, which I can understand why that's attractive to people. Every, I sure want God to win in the end. But um, if you have the view that God can win in the end no matter what we do, then it makes our lives insignificant. It makes our lives, I think, meaningless. What we do really doesn't matter. And if what we do really doesn't matter, then um, I find that hard. It's hard for me to find meaning in my life. Whereas in an open relational view, what we do does matter to God. The end does uh, is uh, dependent in part upon our cooperation, or lack thereof, with God. And I think that's a, it fits really our intuitions about the world and the way we ought to live. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You, you,
2: one of the things you mentioned in your, and God can't, I think was helpful is, is it's it's under, it's in your chapter on how it's, it's your, I guess, sort of step three, that God works to heal where you said that some healing must wait. Uh, can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about, um, how you make uh, what, what? What does healing look like, sort of post mortem, so to speak? I mean, I, th- I think I think the way you yeah, it in yeah. this book was helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some people will appeal to the afterlife as sort of their get out of jail free mm-hmm. card. You know, they'll get into a discussion of evil, and then they'll say, "Well, you know, God's just going to fix it all in the end in the afterlife, and you know, we don't understand it now, but by and by, you know." We'll all be okay i'm not appealing to the afterlife in that sense what i am saying is that the bodies we live in are not the bodies that we will have in the afterworld, afterlife i i think when people die that's actually their body in the tomb that starts to rot now whether or not we get new bodies or we're souls i think the bible has some different kinds of ideas there i'm not committed to any one of them but the main point is the kinds of aches and pains and, and difficulties we have with these bodies will be no more, um, and so I think that I think that's important hope for those people who have conditions in their bodies that are painful that they never heal fully, or they're dealing with trauma from something that happened in their past that they can't ever overcome fully. I think it's important to have hope uh, in the afterlife in that mm. kind of way.
0: How does the this framework think about, maybe this is a can of worms we shouldn't go into, but thinking about, you know, Paul talking, the Apostle Paul talking about the, the principalities and powers. Um, I'm curious, obviously there's a very here and now kind of element of that in this, you know, in this world. Is there any sort of space for, call it the demonic or, you know, sort of the spiritual realm on the kind of non uncontrolling love side of things. And we we don't have to go deep down that path, but just curious kind of what the space is for in this framework for thinking about that side of, of the spiritual realm.
1: Yeah. You know, when we talk about demonic, there's usually two kinds of ways people talk about it. One is kind of talking about the structures of society and civilization that bend toward negativity and evil. And the other is the idea that there are spiritual beings, a realm of demons and Satan that are at work in the world. Um, open relational theology can work with either one of them, but is not committed to the truth of either one of them, uh, at least the truth of the spiritual being. So in other Got words, it. you could I might say it this way, you, I'm agnostic on whether or not there are actually demons in the world or not. Now, if there are, it accounts for it by saying these demons have influence, but they can't control us. Um, And I'm in the camp that says if there are demons that God is even working to redeem them and Satan. Uh,
2: Mm. But if
1: you don't believe in demons, that's that's okay as well. Uh, You can say those, you know, that's just our way of talking about the influences in the world that are toward uh, negative things. And you can go on from there.
2: Wow. Well, Tom, I mean, we are. I know we're coming up here on time. Um, I'm. I just. I, I enjoyed the conversation. The book was great. I mean, oh, I, thank you for our, for our listeners. God has has predestined all of you. <laughs> yes, to, exactly. <laughs> to purchase and 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 participate in in the material. Take taking the material. It's really good. I I think one of my favorite things about finding this. I use this language all the time. It's kind of this neighborhood of the faith, you know, because a lot of times, I mean, I, I've for a while lived in my own mind a, as though my neighborhood was the whole world. Hmm. And then you kind of walk out and you go, oh my gosh, other people have asked this question before. Other people have, have yes. had a problem, for example, like with God helping me find a parking place at target, but not curing this 30 year old dad of cancer. Um, so, uh, I, I think the, the, the main message I hope that folks leave today's conversation with is that, you know, if you, if you have a problem with, with, with the, the ideas of God being all powerful and the world being what it is, or, uh, whatever experiences, abuse, tragedy, uh, those types of things that have happened, your your problem with that is not in in an in indication of a lack of faith or a hindrance of faith. I think it's actually it's a manifestation of it, and 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 I think your your book really gives us uh puts some language to, uh, to to really to demonstrating why that reaction in is that that this says this can't be right, something's wrong here. Why that why that's a faithful response? So I I, I really appreciate just your work and, uh, what you're doing. I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to following you some more, uh, on internet and wherever else, uh, if you ever happen to come by Athens, Georgia, we'll, I uh, have to connect, but mm. thanks a lot. I really appreciate
1: it, Tom. Thank you. you. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking, um, if this is kind of maybe sounds weird, but would you mind if I finished by reading a little note that I just got a couple days ago from a woman who read my uh, my book? God can't. Oh, go for uh, it. I wouldn't mind leaving this kind of being my parting word. Go for it. I ask her. Per- That's uh, great. I asked permission from her to to read to uh, to uh, use this, so I'm not breaking any confidences here, and I won't use her name. So, this is uh, the note she sent. Um, she says. So I will tell you a bit about my story. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse, Hmm. a lot and for a long time by my brother. In the midst of the worst fears of my life, I had a very vivid dream straight from the heart of God. It was him walking over to my bed as I was being raped, and he simply reached out and held my hand and cried. For a few short days, I was elated. God hadn't left me after all. Then came the anger. Anger that he was there, and instead of stopping it, he simply held my hand and watched. For a long time, years, I was angry. Then I prayed for a breakthrough, but realizing I haven't moved past it, I just decided to bury it. So now paging through your book, and praying through, and contemplating, I can see more clearly what may have been happening. God could not stop my brother. He created free will. How would he have stopped him? The reality is, and this is what I'm working on anchoring my soul, is that God couldn't. Not that he didn't. For me, this is a complete game changer. The end. Wow! I think that's a nice way to talk about the difference between my view and the view that a lot of people have heard that said that God could have stopped what happened to them, but chose not to. Gosh, Tom, thanks for what you're Mm. doing, man. This is such important work. Thank you. Oh, thank you for inviting me for the conversation and for introducing these ideas to your listeners.
0: Absolutely. And uh, we'll certainly link up everything in the bottom of the the show notes tom thanks again and uh hey i will also say really enjoying your your photography via twitter uh you live in quite a beautiful a beautiful part (laughs) of the country and uh so between that and and your writing and speaking we're grateful um so we'll we'll certainly turn our listeners that way guys thank you uh again for tuning in to the podcast looking forward to continuing the conversation bye-bye